Well, thank you, Don, for leading us through communion this morning. And I always hear love, love hearing Don teach and hearing his stories. Man, it's great. He has a great voice for it, great demeanor. And it's a blessing to be here with you all this morning. I'm really excited to uh, have the opportunity to preach. My name is Gary. I'm the youth pastor. And even with this opportunity to preach, it's always a little nerve-wracking. <laughs> As I come up here, it's always a little nerve-wracking, but I love how that makes me dependent upon God because I know I can't do it on my own. So it's a good way to get me out of my comfort zone and to just fully rely on God and surrender to his will. You know, I've heard before that comfortable people don't always need and rely on Jesus, right? When things are going well, that's when we typically get a little complacent and where we rely on ourselves. Desperate people need and rely on Jesus. When things are not going well, when you don't know where else to go, that's when you realize God truly is our strength, our provider, and our comforter. Well, about a month ago, I was really low on gas in my truck to the point where I didn't know if I was going to make it to the gas station. Now, you guys all know how that feels, right? (laughs) Everybody knows how that feels, and I've experienced that far too many times. I should have learned my lesson by now. But what do you do in that situation? You pray, right? You plead with God. Lord, please help me to make it to the gas station. Help me to make it there safely and not break down on the side of the road, as it happened last time. (laughs) Now, on a more serious note, much more serious note, when someone you love is lying in a hospital bed, Now, whether it's from an illness they've had for a long time or a traumatic event, our priorities shift and our focus zeroes in on what's important in that moment. Because once we strip away all the stuff, all the success, all the worldly things that we focus on, we're just left alone with us and God. And that realization of how small we are compared to our creator. And when you reach that place, God can do some incredible things in your heart. Because when you feel desperate for Christ, when you feel desperate for God and need him, your prayer life really intensifies. You have passion when you pray. You become more receptive in your reading. And God's words become life-giving to your situation. And this is actually what we get to see with Peter in our passage and what we experience in our own lives. So it's really cool when you get to that place. Well, through sermon prep over this past week, It's amazing when you're able to just drench your prayers and your thoughts into a passage of scripture. And I really, I am so thankful that I have a job that I'm able to do just that. Uh, But it's really cool to see what God reveals to you and convicts you of during that time. So I hope this morning, I hope I put sufficient time into praying. I hope I put time into surrendering to hear his voice so I can deliver the sermon that he wants you to hear this morning, what he wants for you. And I pray it's convicting and challenging but also just encouraging in what you need to hear. Now, you know, preaching can be all kinds of different things, right? Some preachers are extremely smart, and that comes out in their preaching. So don't expect that this morning. (laughs) But you heard that with Don Cole. But if you've ever heard John MacArthur preach, it is mind-blowing how much knowledge of the Bible he has. It's kind of not fair. (laughs) But some preachers are captivating and engaging, right? They, they draw you right in and keep you on board with the sermon and also awake during the sermon. And I think of someone like uh, Louis Giglio, if you've ever heard him before. He uses incredible illustrations to draw you in and keep you into it. But really, one of the most impactful sermons of all time wasn't necessarily witty or funny. It was actually just simplistic and straightforward. And that's what we get to look at this morning. 
This is Peter's very first sermon that he ever delivered, and it's known as the Sermon at Pentecost. Now, first sermons are usually memorable, and typically they're memorable for good reasons, but occasionally some are memorable for different reasons. Now, I've heard of a pastor who started preaching his first message, and he lost a page of his notes, so he was scrambling through the rest of his sermon trying to figure out because he had to skip a big portion of his message. And now there's also another preacher who I heard of. After his very first sermon that he gave, he closed up, he said amen, he started walking down, and a little boy came up to him and confronted him and said, I want to give you some money. And the preacher said, well, thank you, little buddy, but why? And he said, well, my dad said you are the poorest preacher we have ever had. (laughs) I really hope that doesn't happen after service this morning. Now, when I think about first sermons, obviously I tend to think about the first sermon I ever preached. Oh, man, I was a nervous wreck. I I didn't even know if I was going to get all the way through, honestly. Um, When I became a youth pastor, uh, I I knew I had to teach teens, and that's what I agreed to. But right here, I was at that point where I was delivering a sermon to the whole congregation. So I went out there, preached the first message, and thank God he he allowed me to get all the way through it. But I was sweating so bad after that first message, because this is back when we had two services. I was sweating so bad after that first message, I went into my office, took off my collared shirt, and had to hang it in front of the fan just to dry it off. I was sweating that bad. Now, thank God, he is gracious. He allowed me to get back out there, and I was able to get through both services. And people were extremely gracious with their comments afterwards. But first sermons are memorable. Now, Peter's first sermon here at Pentecost was memorable because it, it, it had a profound impact. It brought many souls to Christ. And also, it was known as the day that the church was born. Of course, we all know about Peter. He had a tough time keeping his mouth shut. He was always the first one to let Jesus know how committed he truly was. That is, until we see in the Gospel of Luke, when he denied knowing Christ three times on the night of his crucifixion. He committed the greatest denial of Christ in history. But this morning we are now in Acts passage, and our passage is in Acts 2. And this is 50 days past the the crucifixion, um, which is actually what Pentecost means. And as you can imagine, Peter's actions are probably still fresh on his mind. He probably looks back at how he acted toward Jesus and probably just shakes his head, knowing he messed up and, and feeling a sense of shame for his actions. Now, in some sense, I think we can relate to that. How often do we look back at how we've messed up and then continue reminding ourselves that we're unworthy? And then Satan convinces us to go a step further. And and then we focus on, oh, man, uh, my mistake, how I messed up, oh, me, me, me. Because now, instead of focusing on what he did for my mistake and how he forgave my sins, We have turned that inward and self-focused, right? And we continue uh, focusing on our pitiful selves. But God really wants us to be like Peter here, because instead of wallowing around in shame, he is now ready to make a difference for Christ. And he understands that this is the only thing that matters in that moment. Now, we need to remember that Luke, who highlighted his denial in the gospel, is the same Luke who wrote the book of Acts. And Luke has already explained the, the repentance and the forgiveness that Peter has received. Now he's going to highlight the transformation that's taken place in Peter's life as he preaches this gospel message. 
And Peter has complete confidence that Jesus truly is the Messiah. Now, Peter's transformation came from being emptied of himself. He had nothing left so that he could be filled and used by God. And this same thing goes for all of us here as well. It means that we choose him as our Lord and Savior. And it means we recognize that there is no way other to attain salvation other than through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, when I was in my early 20s, I had been running from God for a few years and not living a life pleasing to him at all. I really wasn't. Um, Now, I still went to church every once in a while. I even read my Bible here and there, but I wasn't living for him. Well, after trying what I could to find happiness outside of him, I finally reached a point in my life where I had to make a choice. Was I going to continue down that path of sin or was I going to completely surrender and hand it over to God? You know, just like Peter, I had to come to the end of myself before I could be filled with God. Really, much like running out of gas in my truck, I had to learn the lesson the hard way. I had to be completely emptied before I understood the lesson and became filled with God. And this is actually a big reason why I became a youth pastor, because I grew up in the church. I went to youth group every week, but I never truly had a relationship with Christ. And so I want to be there to help teens understand how important it is to have a personal faith in Christ. Now, leading up to our passage, as we heard from Pastor Brent last week, there were some amazing things taking place as a result of the Holy Spirit. And if you're like me, probably most of us tend to picture what we've seen in the news recently. Anybody familiar with the uh, revival at the Asbury College? A revival that took place there at that college in Kentucky. Now, I'm not saying everything that took place there was of the Holy Spirit, but I'm sure there were some genuine transformations that happened in some of the students and the different people. But let's imagine for a minute, these events in our passage started taking place right here in the town of Waterville. Right? You heard the news of people speaking in all different languages, and yet the people understood it perfectly. And there was incredible worship taking place. Now, there's no YouTube to pull it up and watch it unfold. There's no news to watch the highlights, whether given accurately or not. This is something you'd probably grab the kids, you'd put the family in the minivan and want to go see it for yourself with your own eyes. And really, that's what took place with the Asbury Revival. People were traveling from all over the country to come and see and hopefully experience what was taking place. Now, in a sense, that is what's going on in our passage and where we're going to pick up this morning because a crowd is gathered to see. They've gathered together to see what's going on here. Now, this is a large portion of scripture, and there's a ton in here. (laughs) We could probably spend three weeks breaking down Peter's sermon, but because of time, I'm just going to hit on some of the main points and uh, some of the highlights of his sermon. It's going to start off in Acts chapter 2, verse 14, and this is where we get to see Peter's course of action as a changed man. It says, but Peter, taking his stand with the other 11, raised his voice and declared to them. Now, this isn't anything out of the ordinary for Peter. However, there is something different about him this time. His priorities have now shifted, and he's focusing on what's important in that moment, which is to share the gospel of Christ with the crowd that is gathered around him. Now, Peter continues, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, know this and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you assume, since it's only the third hour of the day. 
But this is what has been spoken through the prophet Joel. Peter says, drunkenness? No, not at nine in the morning. Now, it kind of sounds like Peter's being a little humorous, right? (laughs) Sounds like a pastor saying our elders aren't drunk yet. It's too early for that. Now, I really don't know. I don't know if he's being humorous or not, but I do know that he wants them to clearly see that what's taking place in front of them is not from the men being drunk. It's not from a drunken party where men are spewing out worthless words. This is from uh, the word of God. It's from what has been prophesied to him. And so he tells them these sights and sound are also not from people being drunk. It was because the Holy Spirit that was moving in their lives. You know, preachers strive to have an impactful opening illustration to their sermon. And uh, we see here in the day of Pentecost, God provided that in a way that fully engaged the whole audience. Now, some of the crowd may have been willing to listen just because they had curiosity to everything that was taking place. But we do know for sure that many of them started to really believe what Peter was saying. So Peter's saying, guys, this phenomenon you're seeing is amazing and shocking, but don't write it off as men being drunk. No, no, no. This is much, much bigger. What you're seeing is what was prophesied to us long ago. Well, One of my hobbies, one of my many hobbies, (laughs) I have a lot of them, uh, is shed hunting. Now, I'll take my dog out with me, and I'll take my kids out, and we'll go shed hunting. And that's not looking for woodsheds around town. It's simply looking for deer antlers. In the winter, they'll drop their antlers on the ground. So we'll walk the deer trails in hopes of finding a deer antler, right? And so sometimes we'll go a long time without finding a deer antler. And my kids get a little bored with that. They get tired. So sometimes I'll bring an antler with me and just toss it out there, right? (laughs) That way the kids come upon it and get excited and stay engaged. But it also, that reminds us what we're looking for and what they look like. Because if we didn't know what they look like, we wouldn't know when we stumbled across one. You see, Peter identifies these fulfilled prophecies because he knew what to look for. And he was waiting in anticipation for them to happen. Because he truly believed the prophets were from God. And that what they spoke was going to come to pass. Well, I'm going to keep it pretty simple this morning by focusing on three things that Peter's sermon points out and confirms for us. And the first one is that fulfilled prophecies build our trust in Scripture. You know, many of the people in that day knew of the prophets and knew what they had prophesied. Even though there may have been some sense where they didn't fully understand it, They still respected and hoped that the prophecy would come to pass. Now, I'm sure, as you can imagine, belief about the prophecies might have faded, right, from generation to generation as it was passed down. So Peter's going to quote Joel and David here to show that the prophets spoke of this long ago. When we do a bonfire for the youth group, I always do a little planning ahead, make sure we have a fire pit and a fire permit, (laughs) and uh, kindling, and some logs, maybe a pallet to burn. That is the prep work so that the fire is ready to rage when we get there. These prophets kind of serve as the prep work for the arrival of the Holy Spirit to set the people on fire. And Peter's saying to his audience, who only had the Old Testament back there, he says, open up God's word. Open it up. Look at what was foretold. He points them back to Scripture. And this also helps us see consistency, right, through the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because all scripture is God-breathed through man. And God doesn't just want us to read it. He wants us to study it, test it, make sure it's reliable and consistent 
Because when we do that, our faith is fortified, knowing he's the truth. And all scripture is laced with that common thread that Jesus is our savior who came to earth to restore our relationship with our heavenly father. Now, Peter's sermon is great because it consisted of a lot of scripture. I mentioned the Asbury revival earlier on, and um, I was just watching a short video on YouTube the other day. There was this random guy who shows up at the revival. I don't even know where he was from, but he started teaching uh, a small group that had gathered around him right on the front lawn of the campus. And this guy was passionate. He was confident and sounded like he was speaking the truth. However, he started telling this little group that they must be baptized to earn salvation. That's the only way they earn salvation. And they only have the Holy Spirit in them if they could speak in tongues. Well, that's not what scripture tells us. <laughs> and so he started, this error started sneaking into his teaching because he went away from scripture and started sharing his own thoughts and actually led the people to a false understanding of salvation. But in Peter's sermon, he stays on the line of truth without going under or over it. And he really does that by staying strictly to the, to the scripture, using a lot of scripture and not adding to it. Now, in his sermon, he starts off by pointing to the prophecy of Joel. And this is kind of interesting because if you look at the book of Joel, it's, it's predominantly about judgment on the nations. But Peter uses this little portion here that shows God's mercy as he explains deliverance and salvation that will come through the coming Messiah. And I think Peter does this because he, he gives hope to the crowd who we will soon, or we will soon see that are going to be convicted of their actions. So he kind of gives them that little window of mercy. And we're going to get into Joel in a little bit. But now if Joel's prophecy wasn't enough, he adds another prophet by reading the words of, of David. David's probably a little more popular, a little more well known than Joel. The people believed and respected David because they'd heard the stories and knew he was a man of God. And this is cool because Peter knows his audience, and so he uses their understanding to show consistency in what David spoke long ago, way back in the book of Psalms. And so in our passage in verse 25, this is what it says. I saw the Lord continually before me because he's at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue was overjoyed. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, David points out the hope we have because of the one who will never undergo decay. Now, David's words held a lot of weight to that, the people in that day. But Peter's not going to leave time for the audience to start thinking about how great David was. He then shifts the attention quickly to his death and burial. Verse 29, brothers, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Peter doesn't want them to think of David as any greater than simply the prophet he was. He now directs the focus right on Jesus in verse 30. So because he was a prophet and knew God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. It's this Jesus whom God raised up, a fact to which we're all witnesses. Therefore, since he's been exalted at the right hand of God and has received the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father, he has poured out this which you both see and hear. 
So this is what they're witnessing. The prophecy was playing out right in front of their eyes and proven to be true. This means all scripture is true. You know, many things let us down, right? Many things let us down. Politicians lie to us. I know that's shocking to you. Uh, companies falsely ad- advertise. It's almost as if we've kind of grown callous to promises because they're so rarely followed through with. However, God never forgets or fails to, c- to keep his promise. And David really knows this better than anyone. And if you look in the book of Psalms, you'll see they're filled with David praising God for being the promise keeper. So what Jesus says will come to pass. It's not if or I hope so. His promises stand true and the prophecy of Joel and David, as we see here, prove his credibility. Now, I have this old, 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 really old wooden extension ladder at my house. And I use it only for specific jobs around the house because when you climb up the first three steps, it's pretty solid. You feel okay. It feels fine. But when you get to that fourth and fifth step, they start flexing and creaking. (laughs) And my faith in that ladder begins to waver. Now, I also have a nice aluminum ladder, and this is usually the one I go to first. But your confidence is built with each step you take on that one. And this is where trust is built. As we see his promises fulfilled time and time again, we place more and more trust in what he tells us. And considering God's words have never failed us or let us down, we should always trust what he says. Now, Peter's sermon does an incredible job of tying it all together and making it simple to understand. But he's not just telling the crowd, explaining what's happening. He also takes the time to explain how to receive this gift of grace. And this gift that many of them received on the day of Pentecost is available for everyone here as well. And this leads me to the second point. The Holy Spirit is available for all mankind. In David and Joel's prophecy, both prophecies, Peter really focuses on the Spirit, the Helper that's coming. And this is what they're witnessing. And Jesus talked about the same Helper in John 16. But I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now let's go back to Peter's sermon here and look at what Joel, uh, Joel's prophecy all the way back in verse 17. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. And your young men will see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, and I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. This is a promise of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. That's pretty cool. It's a promise that God will live in his new temple, not in a building, but actually in his people. Now, the people are probably a little shaken up at this point, but Peter says, guys, this is the Holy Spirit that's been prophesied to us long ago that all mankind can experience. Now, before this, their understanding was that certain men would receive the spirit. And we, this is illustrated back with Nathan. He confronts David about his sin with Bathsheba. And David is broken and remorseful. And he pleads with God in Psalms 51. He says, do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. But now we are seeing men and women, rulers and servants, Wealthy and lowly will all receive the Spirit. Now, Pastor Brent has mentioned before that the gospel levels the playing field, right? As we all come together and and bring glory to God. 
And that's what's taking place here. And this statement in our passage is shocking because if you look back in that culture, the people he names off are not on the same level, right? If he just names off the Jews or the wealthy and great men, that would have been easier for them to grasp. But he says, all are able to receive the spirit. Verse 19, and I will display wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood, fire, and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. Now, this is describing the Messianic age, the beginning of the Messianic age, which we're actually still living in right now. It's known as the church age or the age of the spirit. So not all of these things have come to pass quite yet. Verse 21, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This amazing thing the people were witnessing is available for everyone. Well, I was working on my washer machine the other day, which can be frustrating, (laughs) but I just wanted to see the simplest way to remove and replace a certain part in the washer. So what did I do? Well, I went to YouTube, right? Pulled up a video. And there are hundreds of thousands of YouTube videos to simplify whatever it is you want to accomplish. We live in a world where we want it as simple as possible. But when it comes to surrendering to God, and and our eternal salvation, we feel the need to put in our effort and that it must be a difficult task. And that reminds me of Naaman. If you remember Naaman, back in 2 Kings, to be healed of his leprosy, he was told to go down, dunk in the Jordan River seven times. But he didn't believe it at first, did he? That sounded too simple, too easy. There's rivers closer. He So he put it off and he kept putting it off because it sounded too simple. Even though he eventually did, he followed through and obeyed and was healed of his leprosy. But he put it off at first. You know, the Holy Spirit-empowered life is available to everyone in a simple way. It's not a certain price. It's not only those who can afford it. It's not a certain act for only those who could perform it. It is simply calling on the name of the Lord, proclaiming him as the Messiah of your life. And it's something that every person can do, and yet so many people see it as too simple or too easy, right? Give me the tough thing to do. Show me how many good things I have to accomplish or the price I have to pay. As you're starting to see, the problem is that we get in the way. We simply have to recognize we're sinners, know that he paid the price for us, ask for forgiveness of our sins, and repent of those sins. And this offer isn't only for Peter's audience, right? That stands true for everyone in the audience today. If you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. But saved from what? What are we talking about here? Or is it saved from bad health or saved from poverty or suffering? No. In fact, suffering and struggles and poverty, those things are very much still a part of the Christian life. The salvation we're talking about is being saved from an eternity apart from God. It's a salvation we can experience right now here on earth as as we have hope and joy as we go through this life. It's a salvation we will experience for all eternity in heaven. And it's cool because the Holy Spirit they experience is the same Holy Spirit that lives in us. So that same power is available to us as well. And you know, there's an intimate connection between being filled with the Spirit and being filled with the Word. As we fill ourselves with God's word and yield to it, we make ourselves available for the filling of the spirit. Now, it's not that we actually get more of the spirit in our life, right? We have all the Holy Spirit we will ever need or want 
the moment we become a believer. But what it means is we become less of ourselves and allow the spirit to work in and through us. And so then more of the spirit guides our thoughts and our actions and our whole life. And then we are living on fire and effectively living for Christ. Now, the spirit also allows us to be of one mind. We act in unity because God guides our thought and actions to live out his will, not ours. So what this crowd is witnessing is not out of control chaos going on all over the place because God is not the author of confusion. In fact, this event shows the unity that the Holy Spirit brings to all believers. And it also, the Spirit leads us to do what we are made for, which is to worship him. We recently finished our small group Bible study um, with the teens. We used to meet on Friday night. It was called Blazing Center. And John Piper is the author. And in his book, he emphasizes this statement. God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. And throughout scripture, we see God telling us, magnify me, glorify me, bring praise to me, because that's what we were made for and what fulfills us. Now, the Holy Spirit guides us and shows us what brings glory to our Heavenly Father. Now, you kind of get a sense through this passage that the people struggled to understand this whole thing because they put a lot of weight in the prophets. They may even have seen the prophets as almost gods or certainly someone greater than Jesus. So Peter is emphasizing and clearly confirms who it is in our third point. Jesus is God. So the Holy Spirit was paving the way, allowing the people to be receptive to hear Peter's words, because Peter is now, he's ready to deliver the gospel message here in verse 22. This is where he really gets pointed with it. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Now, Peter doesn't pull any punches here. He is specific that this Jesus is the one from Nazareth who they knew very well. And if you remember the sign they put on the cross up above his head, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Peter recalls their memory to the cross to let the weight of what they had done to him really, really sink in. So now there's a amount of guilt, right? That brings them to the place of remorse and repentance for their actions. And Peter lays it on thick. You were the ones who denied him. You were the ones who put him to death. Now we need to keep in mind, though, that this was a feast that was going on when this all started taking place. Kind of a pilgrimage where people were coming from all over to the city of Jerusalem. So there were most likely people in the crowd who didn't physically put him on the cross. But the point was the same. It was to all of them. You were all guilty. Now, of course, none of us were there on that night that Jesus was crucified. None of us yelled out, crucify him. But we are all guilty of sending him to the cross to pay that payment for our sins. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So Jesus' sacrifice is a result of each one of us, and that really should bring us to a place of remorse for our actions. And this is where a repentant heart flows from when the reality of that really sinks in, because we are all guilty for the payment on the cross. But this isn't poor Jesus, right? He's not a victim, not at all. This didn't catch God by surprise, like, oh no, they chose to sin, what do I do now? He predetermined this all from the beginning. It's his predetermined plan. 
God ordained this rescuing act from the beginning of time. Now, predetermined means that God never gets new information, right? He never has to factor in a change of course or a new equation. This is all ordained from the very beginning, and he gives us a free will to choose his salvation. Now, this is one of the greatest mysteries that's been argued through generations, right? And it's not something we can fully wrap our minds around as finite human beings. And it's not something he wants us to fully grasp. God just wants us to fully trust that he is sovereign and he is in complete control of everything in our lives. And yet we are still given the choice to choose him or deny him. And we do know what God's plan was in verse 24. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Death was defeated once and for all by the precious blood of the Lamb. Death couldn't hold him down because Jesus is the Messiah, and he made a way for us to spend an eternity with him. Verse 32 says, This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Now, I'm not positive about this, but most likely it wasn't disputed whether he rose from the grave or not. There were firsthand witnesses right in that crowd that Peter was speaking to. So they probably all knew that this was true, that he rose from the grave. And so the resurrection is what sets us all apart. Peter had a transformed life because of his interaction with Jesus after the crucifixion, after the resurrection. Now, if Jesus claimed to be the Messiah and he was a righteous man, he lived a good life, but then he was crucified and he was buried And then there would be no evidence of his messiahship. However, the resurrection is what fulfills the promise of verse 33. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this, which you both see and hear. So because he resurrected, the promise was taking place right before their eyes. And you know, this same resurrected Lord is the same Lord that we will be celebrating a week from today. On Easter. Now, Peter doesn't leave them hanging. He highlights now for the second time and he reemphasizes that it's not the prophets, it's not David. Verse 34 For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Did you know this is the most quoted or referenced Psalms in the whole New Testament? Obviously, it's something the New Testament authors really wanted to make clear to us. Because the Father is showing that Jesus is God. Verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now this is a big statement. Because he emphasizes you were all wrong about Jesus and you crucified him. However, the resurrection proves he is both Lord and Christ, the Savior. And this really ties it all back together with verse 21. When he said, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Because the idea is that when you call on the name of the Lord, you are calling on Jesus. And this led the men in the city. They had a realization of who Jesus really was and what they had actually done to him. And that realization led to verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what are we to do? Now, Peter's sermon convicted and challenged them, but he didn't leave them feeling hopeless and ashamed for their actions. He gave them hope by showing them God's grace and had them asking, brothers, what are we to do for God? 
we are all faced with the same challenge this morning. We're all faced with the same challenge. Will you choose to soften your heart and allow him to take care of business in your life? Or are you going to deny responsibility in the crucifixion and refuse his gift of grace? I really pray today that we take the time to ask that same thing that they ask. What is it that I need to surrender? What idols have I placed before you, God? What are those dark corners of my life that I still need to hand over? We are all still in the process of becoming more like Christ, so we all have something to surrender. You know, we see Peter on the night Jesus was crucified experiencing a profound emptiness. And then just 50 days later, we see him filled with the Holy Spirit preaching the sermon at Pentecost. So this morning, if you've never experienced complete emptiness, you will never know the fullness of Christ in your life. The fullness of Christ in your life when means become you become fully surrendered and dependent upon God. So maybe you're sitting here this morning and you've been saved for many years. You've had ups and downs in your Christian walk. Maybe you've drifted a little bit late as of lately. Do you need to be pierced to the heart and reminded of the grace you've been given? And maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, I don't know if I've ever fully understood uh, scripture and understood what this meant or accepted Christ into my heart. Sure, I believe in God, but I don't have a relationship with him. Well, allow him to pierce your heart, call on the name of the Lord and accept his gift of grace. You know, he doesn't want you to wait until you feel clean enough to come to him, right? We would all be unqualified if that was the case. He wants you to come to him exactly the way you are with a willing heart. Allow him to forgive your sins and he will begin transforming you to look more like him. And I pray this morning, honestly, that this was an encouragement to you. And I just want to ask you all, if you could, please stand with me. I'm going to close us in prayer. Dismiss us in prayer. Dear God, Lord, I just thank you for the opportunity to be able to preach this morning. God, I thank you for the opportunity to just surrender to your will, and I pray that this message hits home to the congregation this morning. God, I thank you for the opportunity to worship you, and Lord, I pray that we truly take this passage to heart and know that we are all guilty because of our sin payment. We are no different than the crowd that was standing there as Peter uh, spoke his sermon at Pentecost. But God, help us to know that you took our sin payment upon you. You paid that price. And you just want us to call on your name and accept your forgiveness. Lord, help us not to get in the way and complicate things and try to do things because you've already done everything right there on the cross for us. And God, help us to be thankful for that payment that you've given us. And Lord, as we come into the week leading up to Easter, the Resurrection Sunday, God, help us to remember this payment and reflect on what you did for us and God, what you offer us, your gift of grace. Lord, I pray you bring us back next week, excited to worship you and your resurrection day. In Jesus' name, amen.